Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of John. We are still in the first chapter. I would invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1, and we'll pick up where we left off last time in verse 35. We've been talking about Jesus all morning, and we've been studying one of the Gospels, John's Gospel, for six weeks, but we have not yet heard Jesus say a word. Well, we get to that point this morning. We're going to see, according to John, what Jesus' first words in his public ministry were to actually the first prospective followers. Uh, One of them, Andrew, and another is not named. But let's read this. You can listen as I read. But we're in John 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that the same spirit which inspired this passage make this passage known to us by helping us understand what it means. And Lord, we ask that same spirit to give us the strength to obey the implications of what this passage means to us. How should we obey? Lord, we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin asking ourselves a question as we study through this gospel, the gospel of John. And we will ask ourselves this question uh, a number of times along the way. Sometimes it will make more sense to us. Sometimes it won't as much, I suppose. But the question is this, and we'll ask it of ourselves. Do we know Jesus as well as we think we do? That might be somewhat of a loaded question. You might say, well, you've been here a number of months, but you should know where you are, right? Of course, we know Jesus. We're very familiar with him. We read about him. We study about him. We do that in Sunday school all the way down to the nursery. In fact, uh, we've been doing that for quite a long time. In fact, we tell other people about Jesus. And while we're all together at church, we sing about him quite a bit too. We do know about Jesus. But the question, I think, is a good question. We should ask ourselves regularly. Yes, we know him, but do we know him as well as we think we do? 
or as well as we should know him. And it's passages like this that are going to challenge, I believe, what it is we think we know about Jesus. Maybe specifically, who we think he is and how we think he acts. This morning, what we just read and what we're going to consider is not anything that hasn't already been read or already been considered. There's nothing new here. This is very old. But it might be that these very old things may challenge the, the more modern day Jesus that our culture that we live in may have very well attempted to reconstruct a Jesus in their own likeness. You've heard that before, that, that the, uh, the, the commandments say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But we've done a, a very good job at trying to do that very thing. Reconstruct a Jesus that is more user-friendly. Reconstruct a Jesus that's more politically correct. Uh, a Jesus that is... Uh, Better suited uh, for bumper stickers and coffee mugs that'll sell on a, on a shelf somewhere. Best of all, maybe at Christmas time. Maybe a more socially minded Jesus. Maybe a more affirming Jesus. Maybe a more like us Jesus. We're at danger of doing those things. And what we'll learn today, I think, will we'll challenge those things. It should be evident by now that the contents of this gospel, the gospel of John that we've been studying, are not a random, loose-leaf stack of stories about Jesus, no more than the other gospels were. It wasn't that these men who wrote these gospels kept a shoebox full of stories that they remembered from their time with Jesus, and whenever someone would come by and say, what was it like when you were with Jesus, they get out the shoebox and, well, let's see, this happened and this happened. These men wrote this meticulously for a purpose. We've already seen that so far. And at the, at the end of the book, we read John's purpose. And all of what he said fits within that purpose. He's trying to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he's writing. And then in the first chapter, we looked at his claims that he made. First was that Jesus was God in verse 1, chapter 1. Then in verse 14, that Jesus became flesh. And that's what Christmas is all about. And then at the bottom of the opener, at verse 18, he said that Jesus was here to show us the Father that we couldn't see otherwise. And then the rest of the book is an arrangement of evidence to support those claims. And last week, actually the last two weeks, we studied John's first witness, which was John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist have to say that will convince you that Jesus is who he said he was? Last week, that's what we gave our time to. Well, in this case, we pick up on the subsequent day, and we're actually into our third day. If you remember there, looking at, uh, let's see, verse 29, we read the next day. Well, that was day two. This morning, uh, we read verse 35, and the next day, that's the third one. And then at verse 43, and the next day, that's actually a, a fourth day there. So all of these are in sequence. And that John is making careful, and uh, let, let, let's just call it careful intentionality in his writing. Do we suppose that when he gets to the part that we just read here today, 
the first words that Jesus is going to say in his public ministry, do you think John's going to leave that to just whatever he thought or came to mind when he began to write? Or do you think he spent a long time trying to figure out, all right, the first words that he actually says, let's make those count. Not that if he's making them count, but the first words that Jesus said, did they count? What was Jesus saying? What do these things mean? So, of course not. He's not going to handle this carelessly. This is going to be a big deal. So what we'll do today, we have points again. Even though this is narrative, but there are three points. And we'll use the three lines that Jesus spoke in the paragraph that we read. If you paid attention, there were three times that he spoke. The first was actually a question. What are you seeking? The second was come and you will see. And the third is you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So those are the three lines that Jesus said. This is John recording what he said. But these will be our three points. So we'll look at number one first. What are you seeking? And that doesn't come until we get to verse 38, but we started reading in verse 35, so we've got a little bit to work through before we get to Jesus' first line. So let's make sure that we understand this correctly. Here's something to keep in mind, just to paint the picture of what's going on so we understand it correctly. John the Baptist that we have studied the last couple of weeks, the man with the uh, interesting outfit even more interesting diet, had one message, and that was repent, who introduced Jesus, as we studied in the previous paragraph. John the Baptist had at that point a very large following. John the Baptist had disciples. They followed him into the wilderness. A bunch of people came out to listen, but some of them stuck around. What he was saying to them uh, was... Of great importance to them. It it changed their life more than just. Hey one sermon's good enough. And they go back to town. Others thought that they might give more of their lives to this. They began to follow this man. Before Jesus would ever have a following. John had a following. But John said. I'm here for the purpose of introducing. The one that comes after me. So it seems as if John's ministry had a very real expiration date. And once he had introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world, his work as a front runner, a proclaimer, uh, as someone in my Sunday school class back in Virginia said, John the Baptist was the first hype man. Man who goes out at the beginning of the concert and gets the crowd ready. Well, he's about to roll off the scene. His work is basically done now that he's introduced Jesus. And what we see here is that the disciples of John who followed John are now being told by John to follow Jesus. There he is. Go follow him. And we talked about the three days. The first day was he's here, but John didn't introduce him. The second day, behold him. He introduces Jesus. The third day, follow him. As if to say, my work is done. So look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's for the second time. Read that previously. 
The two disciples that heard John say this, they followed Jesus. So John simply said, there he is, follow him, my work here is done. So they left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. Now do you think that would be an easy move for these people? They'd followed John for some time, now they're following somebody that they met just the day earlier. Find out that that's actually John's cousin, Jesus, who he introduced as the Lamb of God. Should that be any trouble? It depends on whether or not John prepared them for this. And I think he had, because it doesn't look that it takes very long for the transition to take place. In fact, we don't even see any rupture of that relationship between John the Baptist and his followers, them leaving John and going to follow Jesus. Now, we'll read later on that John still had men following him, and maybe they didn't quite take to this transition as much as the others had. But think about that. How, how, how do you feature such a, a transition or a change? You know, we get upset if we find out somebody who used to go to our Sunday school class is going to another Sunday school class. This is a, a much bigger deal than that. But there's, there's something to learn here, I'm sure of it. And the point is this. John the Baptist didn't use his influence to build his own brand. So there wasn't a lot for these men to leave other than just to follow the message he'd been teaching all along. There wasn't any talking about or worrying about his influence. And you, you may think about that sometimes. You have influence. We all have influence. Sometimes in the public sphere, it's, it's, it's a popular and noble thing to lend your influence perhaps to help uh, the small guy or, or, or something like that. Well, that's a lending of influence. I'll see what I can do. This is a giving away of his influence. At the end of this, John is basically nothing. A voice that was there in the wilderness to make way for Jesus. Basically, this transaction amounts to his giving up his very identity. Ever thought about that? If, 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 if that's what your calling in life were to be, to make a name for yourself, or to use whatever name or influence you had for the likes of another, which would be Jesus. It's basically the same uh, point of previous sermons, but we're still seeing John carry out this same idea. He must increase, I must decrease. I am not the Christ. So this is the end of the road for us. Now let's make sure we see what happens the way John uh, sets up this story. Look again one more time at verse 35. The next day John was standing. That means he's standing still. And he's standing with two of his disciples. And they're having a discussion. What point or time in the day this is, we're not exactly sure. Depending if they use Roman time or Hebrew time. It's either 4 o'clock in the afternoon or 10 o'clock in the morning. Makes most sense it's 10 o'clock in the morning. So the crowds probably haven't gathered yet. And the crowd may be gathering, but John is talking to his disciples, his followers. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by. So Jesus was not standing with them. Jesus was walking by them and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's John speaking. He said that the day previous. Now, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this. So the men that were standing with John the Baptist heard John the Baptist say about Jesus who's walking by, Behold the Lamb of God. And what did they do as a response to this? They followed Jesus. 
So John's probably abbreviating here. There might have been more that went into this discussion, but basically it's one last time. Behold him as he goes. That's your cue. Go follow him now. And that's how it happened. Now what happened as a result? That's verse 38. Jesus turned, which means he'd either stopped and had, was either parallel with them or in front of them, but he couldn't be behind them because he's turning. Turning toward men who are now following him. And he saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? There's the first words of Jesus in his public ministry. That's his opening line to what amounted to prospective followers. Jesus didn't have any followers yet. These are, these are new followers, maybe. If, if he does everything right, they should be permanent followers, right? Well, let's see. Here's a good place for a question. Is this the question, or are these the words that you would expect from Jesus? If someone had said, now stop, don't, don't read any further, we saw what happened with John and the men standing there. And he said, behold the lamb. And now it's your turn to go. And they're going. Jesus already passed by. They're catching up to Jesus. Jesus turns around. You fill in the blank. What do you think would be a, a great opening statement to the very conception of his public ministry? What should he say? What, what would be great to put on, on your wall somewhere? I'm pretty sure that at the bottom of the list we would have, what do you want? <laughs> what do you think? That's what he asked them. What are, you, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? What is it that you want? Not exactly what we would expect. But who's saying this? The God who made us. So, of course, there's a reason, there's a purpose. Jesus knows what he's doing. And the, the perfect words, we've just got to figure out what it is that they mean. So if we put ourselves in the shoes of these men, Andrew and another, and there's a lot of speculation as to the fact that the author of this gospel, John, is the other. He doesn't like to refer to himself, except the one whom Jesus loved. And we don't know at this point if that's him or not. Um, they're following John the Baptist because they were looking for the Messiah. That's obvious. Same reason the men from Jerusalem came asking, are you the Messiah? Well, they're all looking for the Messiah. So that's what they're doing. And at least on the strength of John's witness, they found the Messiah because that's what John said. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He's him. So based on John's testimony, they think they've got their man. So it's not a... Who are you looking for? That wouldn't fit. They know who he is. He knows who they are. So that's not what they're asking, and that's not what Jesus would need to say in response. This is a what are you looking for, not a who are you looking for, but what do you expect to get out of your Messiah? What do you expect a relationship with this guy to do for you? What do you expect... That following Jesus should actually amount to in your life? That is a much deeper question. In fact, that's probably the deepest question that man and woman and child on the planet earth has ever asked. What is it that you want out of your time you live and breathe on this planet? What is it that you want? 
What are you looking for? I mean, really. We write songs about this all the time, don't we? I mean, when I was graduating, it was you too. Still hadn't found what he was looking for. When my parents graduated, it was uh, Mick Jagger. And he still didn't find any satisfaction. And I don't know what today would be the equivalent or back further than that. But the world has been contemplating this question for a very, very, very long time. Perhaps even after being banished from the Garden of Eden was when man and woman first started asking or thinking. Now, what is it that I'm looking for? What is it that I want? So in what we've seen of Jesus in the Gospels, and this goes back to how I'd introduced this sermon, do we know this Jesus as well as we think we do? Right out of the gate, is Jesus making it easier or harder for people to follow him? I mean, which works better? Which is easier? Which is harder? What is it that you want? Or, boy, I'm glad to see you. Which one? One we might expect, the other not so much. And this is just the beginning of, of, of what we see Jesus actually say to people that he meets for the first time all through the scriptures. You've got the fellow who came and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head and you won't either if that's what you're looking for. Wow. Then you've got another person. Um, Let's see here. I've been putting this off, but I'm going to need glasses one of these days. <laughs> Let the dead bury their dead. That was another thing he told another guy. I'll follow you. I need to bury my daddy first. Well, let the dead. Let that take care of itself. You follow me now, you won't follow me ever. I say, the man's dad might just have died. Well, probably not, but still... Not what you'd expect. What about the rich young ruler? You think you've got it figured out? You don't. There's one thing you're missing. Sell everything you've got. Take all the money. Give it to the poor. Be a nobody and follow me. What did he do? He walked off. And then there's the people in chapter 6. We'll read sometime in the new year. Where after he fed everybody loaves and fish. The next day they came and he said, why are you here? You're only here because I fed you yesterday. I'm the bread of life. And then it gets even worse. He said, in fact, unless you want to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't even have any part in this. People really started leaving then to the, to the tune that he actually asked his disciples, are you going to leave too? Everybody else is leaving. So does Jesus make it easier to follow him or harder to follow him? It seems as if on purpose he's making it harder to follow him. And that is not the way we would do this. This isn't what we would expect. So what is, what is there to learn here? Because this is so different than the way we would do it if we were the ones doing it. And how is Jesus at all going to establish a following or get anywhere with these people if this is the way he's acting? Well, it might have something to do with our culture, why it seems so different. I mean, you could bring up my, my favorite salesman at the Sam's Club. We've mentioned him before in here, right? The guy who's selling... Um, satellite TV service. He's got a tough job because everybody really knows it's not half the good deal he says it is. But his pitch, if he's going to convince me that it is what he says it is, how's he going to do that? 
by pitching me an offer and making me think that I can't live without it. He's got to upsell that product. I've never had him ask me on the way by. So what is it you're looking for in your satellite TV provider? Maybe I've got what you need. Come over here and I'll show you. It's never like that. It's backward almost. What about Jesus as far as him selling himself? If that's the way we're used to doing this, how's Jesus going to roll out his product? I mean, he just started. We saw the opening words, but what's the rest of it? Has he got a website? How about his social media? Does he have any uh, rewards program? I'm not trying to be cute here, but really, how is this going to change the world if he acts as if It's a secret that you need to come to him for rather than him going to you for. Well, there's a lot to learn. So Jesus has got his work cut out for him if, of course, we're looking at, say, a pitch for Shark Tank or something. And that's all business. It's retail. It's marketing. We get all that. But what about in our churches? All right, now I'm playing... Softball, let's bring out the fast pitch here. Is this the way we handle church? If Jesus was here this morning, where would he be? Out front? Would he be a greeter? If he's the greeter and the first thing he asks to someone who walks up the steps there, what do you want? (laughs) What are you after? Would we say he's doing a good job as a greeter? Say, no, 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 you need to ask them how they want their coffee in the Sunday school class. It's it's warm. We got it right up there. Did you have our guest parking? I hope you did. If you didn't, use that next week. You know, uh, we've got this bulletin here, and and it'll tell you everything that's going on. And here's my number, and you can call me if you want to. Other churches go crazy with this type of stuff. It's almost as if you feel like you're talking to the direct TV guy. You want to just listen, I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll judge for myself whether or not this place is all that you say it is. But is that the way we do things even around our own churches? Now remember, we're not Jesus. We're not comparing ourselves with Him. We're His children, and He commissioned us to win the lost world and be winsome in doing so. We have to be real, we have to be loving, we have to be Christ-like. But then again, we learn from the patterns of Jesus here. I know I'm drawing this out. We're going to get to a point here because we see what Jesus does with these real people as we move along. So let's, let's take it to the next step. But not forgetting the question, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? Why are you looking for the Messiah? We could ask ourselves the question this morning, why are we sitting here with our Bibles open in our lap? What do we hope to get out of this? Is it because our wife wants us here? Is it because we want better for our children? Is it because we want to know what's in the contents of this book and how that bears on our lives? There's so many ways we could answer this, but we've got to answer it. Why are we here? What are we looking for? And anytime Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's not because Jesus doesn't know. He knows. Why do you ask your children questions? Parents do this all the time. 
Because you don't know the answer? No, you know the answer. You want your child to think through the question. The discipline of, of thinking through the question brings them to the point of answering the question. And it, the whole thing's a learning process. You're, you're, you're strengthening them through it. So when Jesus asks a question, what are you looking for? It's time to think, what am I looking for? When Jesus asks, and in this case, these are his first words. First words of Jesus are a question. So how did Andrew answer the question? Well, look at the second half of the verse. And they said to him, this is Andrew, and the other unnamed disciple we think is probably John, Rabbi, which is a respectful thing to say. It means teacher. John tells us that's why it's in parentheses. And here's what they say. Where are you staying? So they answer a question with a question. You think, well, that might sound a little rude. Well, probably John is, again... uh, He's condensing all this. He's abbreviating. There's probably more to the conversation there than we see. But do you think really what these two men were all about? What they got up that morning to go talk to John so he could say, there he is, and follow, catch up with him. We really need to know, Jesus, your mailing address. Where do you live? have been knowing this all the time. It's just eating us up. Probably not. And what Jesus responds to them when he says, come and see my house, is probably not referring to where does he live. Now, my kids like to know where people live. They've enjoyed, by the way, all these meals we've had in so many of your houses. Because little kids like to know what people's houses look like on the inside, right? I'm sure it'd be interesting to know where Jesus was staying and what it looked like. But think of it this way. You've just been asked the most important question ever that goes right down to the bottom of your motivators, okay? What is it that you want? How do you answer that question, standing on the side of the road while the sun is getting high? That's a long answer to a very short question. So likely what he's saying here is, you know what? Can I come by and we sit down? This might take a while. Where do you live? Where are you staying? And how does Jesus respond? Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. So that's a protracted amount of time. For it was about the tenth hour. And if that's morning, they had all the afternoon. And just as Andrew's question had little to do with Jesus' address, neither does Jesus' answer have much to do with the same What do you suppose is veiled behind that second statement? This is point number two. Come and see. What do you suppose Jesus could actually open your eyes to? If seeing is more than just my house. Maybe if come and see is equally as representative as to that very deep question. What is it that you want? Do you suppose he's telling Andrew... I can show you what you want. I can show you what you need to want. I can open your eyes in ways you don't even understand. You don't know yet what is possible for you to see. But you come to me and you'll see it. You suppose that could be tucked in underneath those words? Now what was Jesus here to do? Verse 18, what's the claim John made? Show us who? Because nobody has ever what? 
seen him. Jesus has a lot to show if we're willing to come and see. Could that be what is going on? What do you think the world's looking for? And I'm trying to go back and forth between what was in John's gospel and what is right here and now. What is the world looking for? And it doesn't seem as they're doing a very good job finding, but they're doing a very good job looking. What are they looking for? When I shared, we studied through this in a Sunday school class in Virginia, I mentioned what I had read from a pastor that I uh, have learned a great deal from who spent a lot of time in a university town and had a church full of a lot of young people, millennials that is. He said, I'll tell you right now what, what their lives revolve around. It's basically three things. Drinking, hooking up, and being left alone. That's basically what they want. And I had a, a guy on the front row of the Sunday school class interrupt me right there and said, No, I believe that's everybody. And I thought, just adjust the sliders. But really, I want to have a good time. I want to feel as good as I can. And I don't really care that anybody else has much to say about it. Leave me alone. And I'll handle this. That's basically the lost world without Jesus having opened their eyes. That's basically the world without hope that we talked about earlier as well. Well, and another good place for a question. Is the world better at seeking or better at finding? I think they do a really good job at seeking, just not finding. Uh, first of the year would be a good time to own a, 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 a gym because lots of people are going to be buying memberships. But how long is that going to last? People are seeking a, a better shape or feeling better, but I'd say by Valentine's Day... And they get that big old heart full of chocolate. They hit the second layer by evening. Uh, what difference does it make? They were seeking, but they didn't find anything. Same thing with churches, too. A lot of people seeking. Let's find church the way we like it. Do they stick around? Have they actually found anything? Or is it just seeking the big deal well Andrew and John here are seeking and the come and see is basically an invitation what is it that you want well come and see and I will show you what did Andrew see because we're not told what happened with his time him and perhaps John at Jesus home talking about what it is that they want and Jesus explaining to them what that means. Look at verse 40. One of the two heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. That's how we know that one of them in the house is Andrew. And we learn here, John tells us, that that's Simon Peter's brother. So this is kind of uh, notes that John is giving us so we understand the story. Verse 41, this is what happens immediately after he runs out of Jesus' house on the same day. He first, first thing he did, was found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So I think he's seen some things. What about you? First thing he does is go find his brother and says, Brother, we found him. We've actually found him, the Messiah. You've got to come and see. 
I've seen things. Now it's time for you to see things. Look at verse 42. Here's what happens lastly. The last thing that Jesus did, the one who asked, what are you looking for? Why don't you come and see? And then for those that stick around to see what might be there to see, this happens. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Andrew brings his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. And some of your translations may have the question mark there, like the question. Are you Simon, the son of John? Then you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And by the way, anytime you see Andrew in the New Testament, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. It's a very great example of evangelism. But look what Jesus does. You are Simon, son of John. I'm going to call you Peter. So Jesus gives him a new name. First thing he says to Peter seems to be, he's changing his name. Who are you? I don't know you. My name is Simon. He said, I'm going to call you Peter. Now, Peter means rock or foundation. And anybody that knew these folks, and these are brothers, these people already knew each other. If you know anything about Peter, would we describe him as a foundation stone? No. This is the guy who tried to walk on water and then he sank. This is the guy who said, you're, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, good. And then he said, no, you're not going to die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then in the upper room, he says, you're not going to wash my feet. Oh, okay, well, if that's the way you feel, then give me a whole bath. And then he's standing there after he'd promised, I will die with you. He has to use swear words to convince a little girl that he has nothing to do with that man. This man's impetuous. He doesn't think through things. And everybody standing there would be smiling to themselves. This guy, Jesus doesn't know Peter. He's not a rock. He's not, you can't build anything on Peter. But what's Jesus doing? Jesus is seeing what Jesus sees. And that's not the man who sinks in the Galilee. But the man who preaches and wins 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost. That is Peter. And Jesus knows it. And if Peter stays with Jesus, Jesus will see it, or Peter will see that too. See how this works? He gave him a new name. And we see that a lot in Scripture too. You remember Jacob? What was his name changed to? Israel. What about Abram, which meant father of many? And still didn't have any sons by the time he was given the name Abraham, father of a multitude. And then there's Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. This is a big deal in Scripture. And interestingly enough, this is what Jesus does with Peter. He'd captured Peter, and he would never lose Peter. And when you come to Jesus, you come to see, he'll change your name too. Because he'll change you. Because buried underneath a big question, what are you looking for? Is Christ asking for permission to begin his agenda for which he came to this earth? And that was to change your heart. To change your soul. To change you completely from dead in your trespasses and sins to alive in union with him. That's what Jesus is doing. Do you remember that story, Jacob to Israel? You remember how that all went? Be a good way to close this out. You remember who Jacob was? He was Isaac's son. 
Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You remember who was born first? Esau. Remember what he looked like? He was hairy. And he spent all his time outside. But then Jacob says he was smooth. Smooth in more ways than one. His name actually meant deceiver or trickster. And he was very good at that. And I've since warned people, be careful about naming your son Jacob. So I had a brother named one. And then my sister named one of her kids Jacob. And the same has been true throughout the whole thing. Jacobs are twice the trouble. They're three times the charm. That's how they get by with twice the trouble. And Jacob did this all through his life. And any time he was at a turning point in his life, it seemed that he would go to the point of deception in order to secure something for his own interest. It happened with his dealings with his father-in-law, Laban, who did the same thing to him in the first Night or morning, he woke up thinking he married Rachel. He woke up and there's Leah, her sister there. How that happened, who knows? But then he got Leah, worked another seven years. And it got tough with these men. And, and, and because Jacob, Jacob was a driven man. And even all the way back to the, where it all began, when he lied to his father about who he was in order to get his blessing Isaac asked him, who are you? He said, I'm Esau. But your voice sounds like Jacob. So fast forward all the way to the end. And you've got this man with great wealth. And he's leaving Laban and, and all that behind to have everything for his own. He's got two wives and a bunch of boys. Some girls too. Lots of cattle. And he's on his way when he finds that Esau is right around the corner, and he sent word that he's coming. Last thing Esau said was, you're a dead man. So Jacob's in trouble. And in the night, he splits his goods into companies and tells everybody the same thing. If you see him first, tell him that I'm in the back and give him all these gifts and trinkets. Hopefully, we'll survive this. And if we don't, those of us that are in the back can go the other way. And when he was alone that night, do you, do you remember the story? It says, when he was alone... He wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And while they were wrestling to the break of dawn. And feature this. He's wrestling with the creator of the universe. What does he want from him? I want a blessing. I won't let you go till you bless me. And because it was taking so long. The Lord touched him in his hip. Gave him a limp. But he kept on. I want a blessing. And what was the question that the Lord asked Jacob before he blessed him? What is your name? And you'd have to be Jacob to know how that was the worst question anybody could ever ask him. Because that was the point at which he had began his career of deception. What is your name? And even in speaking the word, he had to say the word that means by definition, liar. Right? My name is Jacob. And he said, not anymore. You'll be Israel. Which means one that strives with God and has prevailed. So what do we learn from that story? I just thought it was a cool story. Until I heard a man preaching through this say, here's what I think that means. 
God is more interested in changing you than blessing you. And always has been. Now, oftentimes, the change comes with a blessing. But the blessing isn't why he died on the cross, to make sure that all your bills were paid. That's a bad deal. I wouldn't die to make sure your bills are paid. But I might die to save your life. People do that all the time. People drown trying to save others from drowning. Think about that. What is it that you want? Maybe you've thought that this whole life was whatever I can get. But if you'll stick with Jesus long enough for him to open your eyes, you might learn that before that happens, what you should want is the grace of Jesus to change your life from dead in sins to alive forevermore. That's what he brought to this earth. It's the gift of Christmas. It's called grace. It's salvation. To change your standing from condemned to justified. That's what Jesus wants. And we're going to find everybody he gets the opportunity to ask. He's asking that question. That's what he's after. But he does it in almost a veiled, hard-to-get type of way that forces you to think your way through it. And any church that just looks as if it's that easy, well, look, it's just a big basket full of gifts. Pick whichever you want. Leave with them. Come back next week. There'll be more. Watch that. Might not be what you need. But a church that'll take this, that asks questions of you each week that you wrestle with and must answer. I am lost and I need a Savior. That answer's correct. So if you're looking for change... He found the right one. Andrew's telling Peter, we found him, Peter. We found him. question is, have you? And I hope you have. Father in heaven, thank you for this service. The beginning of our Christmas season. We've decorated this building. We've been singing songs. It feels right. We know the story. But Lord, may we understand its meaning What does Christmas mean? And what does it mean that you are here to change our lives? To change us as far as our righteousness. To give us what we don't have on our own. To show us the Father. Lord, thank you for these themes. Bless the one seeking here this morning. Bless the one who's thinking through your question. What are you looking for? Lord, may you give them the understanding and the grace to respond looking for Jesus, looking for change, looking for salvation through a Savior. Lord, bring them home today for your glory and your honor. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Would you remain standing with us? David Spivey will come to lead us in prayer, and then we'll sing together, God be with you till we meet again. Let's pray. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for granting us the privilege of meeting here today in your house. We praise you, Lord, as the only one with the power and majesty to provide such a beautiful place of worship for this family of believers. Lord, we thank you for this season where we have just passed the national holiday focused on thanking you for your provisions to us. I pray that you will grant us the grace to continue that focus throughout the year and especially through this month as we approach Christmas. 
a season, Lord, where we celebrate the birth of our greatest, your greatest provision to us, your Son, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we ask your blessing on those who are in need of you today, we pray that you will grant them, each one, that special fulfillment of physical, emotional, and spiritual need that only you can provide. And we ask, Lord, that you also give our mission of the week, Hand of Hope, all the financial and spiritual support that they require to further their efforts to present the gospel to women with crisis pre pregnancies. I ask now, Lord, that you be with us as we go through these, these doors into your mission field and grant us the grace to be salt and light to a world in need of your unfailing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>